Do you need help protecting your finances as you enter retirement? David Dickens of KC Financial Advisors has got you covered. Welcome to the Cover Your Assets KC podcast. It's time for another edition of the Cover Your Assets KC podcast. I'm Walter Storholt alongside David Dickens, President and Wealth Advisor at KC Financial Advisors with an office in Overland Park. We're online at CoverYourAssetsKC.com. David, are you ready for another good episode today? I'm ready for another good episode. I think it's going to be kind of fun. Uh, We'll give a little preview in case the first topic or two doesn't hit somebody's fancy. I don't want them to shut the the podcast off. So we're going to kind of dig into the financial dictionary a little bit today. And we're going to cover four different topics. Uh, We want to talk about what the word overbought means in the stock market. We're going to discuss a little bit about P.E. ratios. We're also going to cover a quick claim deed and what that might mean to somebody's estate. And then since there's so much talk going on today about how the Biden administration is going to change our tax structure, we want to spend a little bit of time on regressive taxes and what that means. So hopefully one, two, or all those topics sound interesting to our listeners today. And I'd encourage you to to uh, stick it out for all four. I think we're going to have some interesting things to say about each. And if one of them doesn't sound interesting, it may just be because you've never heard of it before and don't know what it's about. And uh, so hopefully you'll learn a little something on today's show as well. Kind of like when we get to answer listener questions here on the program and cover a lot of different topics. Uh, Sometimes we like to open up the financial dictionary so we can cover a lot of ground in a short period of time and uh, hit some different elements of the financial planning world. I'm kind of curious. I, I don't. I have no idea what a quick claim deed is, David. So I'm actually looking forward to uh, that one <laughs> out of all of these, uh, just because I have no idea. So I, I'm sure other folks listening today will have at least one or two. They're like, hmm, I wonder what that's all about. So uh, let's get into it. Uh, overbought is the first one. What is overbought in the stock market? Yeah. So this came up. I get this question pretty often, frankly. But the way it was posed to me just today in an email from a client was, hey, I, I, I sold a house. I got some money to invest. I want to put it in one of the accounts I already have with you. Is now a good time? And so first thing I did was go right to the index that I am going to get ready to explain and help me and then him evaluate, is this a good time to invest money? So how I try to determine that is a couple of different factors, but one of the key ones is called a relative strength index. It helps identify whether the market is overbought or oversold. It can help identify whether a particular stock or an ETF uh, is overbought or oversold. So here's what it means. It's a, it's a graph on this charting uh, software that I use in my office. And it basically looks at the last 14 days of a particular stock or, or an index's price movement, its volatility and the magnitude of its price movements. And it measures that and it puts it on a chart that goes from zero to 100. So the the generic takeaway is if that relative strength index is above 70 on that chart, that stock or the market is considered to be overbought right now. In other words, its price movement has been pretty strong over the last 14 days. If it's under 30 on the chart that you could be looking at, that means that it's oversold and the price movement has not been very good. It's been down over the last 14 days. So it is not an an end-all to be-all indicator. It doesn't guarantee that just because the relative strength index is above 70, that the market 
or that particular stock is all of a sudden going to come crashing down because stocks or markets can stay at near or above 70 for quite some time. But what it does help us do is identify, is this a good time to dump all of that money in at the same time? Or should we feed it in over, let's say, uh, weekly over the next four weeks? Because when something is significantly overbought, there's a higher probability that there is some selling that takes place and it comes back down into a more normal range. What I do in my office, I, I bolt that together uh, with uh, looking at the 50-day and 200-day moving averages of a particular stock or, or an ETF, or for that matter, the S&P 500. And if those moving averages are going up and the relative strength index is somewhere between 30 and 70, I feel really confident about adding money, new money, to the market if those moving averages are rolling over and moving down, or if the RSI, the relative strength index, is super high, that makes me more cautious to add significant amounts of money at any given time. Hopefully it's interesting, but hopefully it's a fairly understandable explanation of what overbought versus oversold means and how a person like me actually uses it day to day in my practice. That's pretty helpful. Yeah, I can see uh, the various uses of that. But I can also see the complexity in that, David, and why it's helpful to have somebody like you help analyze some of those things. But I, I hear like I feel like we hear that term a lot if you're watching any sort of Fox business or MSNBC business or, you know, even sometimes in the, I don't know, mainstream media, if I use that word. I don't mean it in mm-hmm. a negative way, yeah. but just the traditional channels, you'll hear, oh, but it's overbought and this and that and kind of the analysis. So hopefully that gives you a little bit more context as to what that means when you hear it referred to in various uh, in various ways. Uh, very good. Overbought. That's our first dictionary word of the day in the financial world. How about financial dictionary item number two, P-E ratio. We're kind of staying in the stock market world here, right? Yeah, we are. And so that's a, a ratio of a particular stock's price to its most recent 12 months earnings. So it's a very, very widely used analysis tool for people to f- try to figure out if something is overpriced or underpriced. Is it cheap or is it inexpensive? Not like we just covered overbought or oversold, but uh, is it currently priced attractively either to the market itself or to its own history. So current example from a local company. Most people in Kansas City have heard of Cerner Corporation. Super successful company up in North Kansas City. Well, frankly, now they're all over town. But they just reported earnings today, quarterly earnings. And if you look at their last four quarters of earnings and add them all up, what you would know is that they earned $2.52 a share over the last 12 months. That's their trailing 12 months of earnings. Now, if you, if you looked at your whatever software you use to look at stock prices, you'd know that right now, Cerner is trading at $73.65 a share. So if you divide $73.65 a share by their 12-month trailing earnings, 
$2.52, you would know that Cerner is trading at a PE of a little over 29 right now. And so you could also look at any other company that trades in the stock market and you figure out what their PE ratio is. And let's say somebody's trading at 24 times earnings and Cerner's trading at 29 times earnings. What that means is that Cerner is trading more expensively to their earnings than this other company. So that's that doesn't necessarily help you because if Cerner is a fast growing company, then investors will pay more for their earnings than they will on a slower growth company. For instance, if you look at, at Ford, Ford is a, you know, a very old company, very predictable. It probably trades, I didn't look it up before we got onto this podcast, but it probably trades at a PE ratio of 10 or 11 or 12 times earnings. Cerner at 29 times earnings. That's because Cerner is considered to be a much faster growing company than Ford. And investors are willing to pay a lot more per dollar of earnings for Cerner than they will for Ford. So how do you use that day to day? Well, one way you can do it is to say, you know that Cerner is currently trading at 29 times earnings. What you might look back and do, which I didn't do for this podcast, but let's just say that historically over the last three or five years, Cerner has traded at only 25 times earnings and now it's trading at 29 times earnings you might determine that Cerner is trading expensively to its own history. And you're gonna wait for it to come back down because for one reason or another, its stock price has gotten frothy. But what you might also have heard is, hey, I hear Cerner's coming out with this whole new product line and earnings are gonna be a lot higher over the next five years than they were over the past five years. So maybe 29 is cheap compared to what it's gonna be. You could also look and say, well, the market, the S&P 500 maybe is trading at 21 or 22 times earnings and Cerner's at 29. So it's expensive to the market. Ford is trading at 11 times earnings, and it's cheap to the market. If you spend time analyzing stocks and stock markets, that will mean something to you that it wouldn't mean to the casual observer who might tune in to CNBC once every week and here's some babble going on about PE ratios. The long and the short of it is, it is a way to value a company, a company's price based on its historical earnings. And then a whole lot of analysis goes on to determine is that particular price today cheaper than it should be, more expensive than it should be, or just about right? Interesting. So uh, it can it can mean one thing, but it can also then uh, you know it can mean hey, this is expensive. This maybe has uh, an indicator of risk, if I'm understanding perhaps. But if people are still willing to to pay for that and absorb that, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad thing, right? It's just just information that goes into the entire equation of whether to invest in something. Right. It's a blunt tool unless you actually know what you're doing with it. To say that um, I was on vacation and I, and I drove 85 miles an hour. Well, <laughs> were you in a 80 mile an hour zone or a 65 mile an hour zone? So there's context that has to happen when using a PE ratio. Like a lot of things in life, you have to know the context. Uh, you can't just use a PE ratio or for that matter, the RSI, which we talked about 
10 minutes ago, you can't use those as a one-trick pony to say this stock is either undervalued, overvalued, overbought, oversold. It, it, makes it sense. provides context to where you are in your investment decisions. Speaking of context, David, I'm going to need it for this next one because I'm not sure what this is. A quit claim <laughs> deed is our next financial dictionary term. So we've covered overbought, P.E. ratio. What about quit claim deed? Yeah, so this gets out of the realm of, of financial instruments and it gets into the realm of real property. So you have a particular property and it's owned by you or maybe a group of people. And one of the owners decides for whatever good reason... I don't want to own this property anymore. All they really need to do is to execute a quit claim deed. And in most states have it notarized. And they, they relinquish whatever interest they have in that property. And they give it to someone who they, they grant that interest to. So that either sounds simple or complex to the, <laughs> to the listener, but one way that is, is commonly used is amongst family members. So for instance, or ex-family members in the example I'm getting ready to give you, but let's say that, that spouses get divorced and, one of, and they own the house, they used to own it together, but the divorce decree just said that only one of them gets to keep the house. A very common way to handle that would be for the spouse who doesn't any longer own the house to execute a quit claim deed toward the benefit of the spouse who now does own 100% of the house. So it's a, it's a super quick, super inexpensive, super easy way to relinquish your claim on a piece of real property. Well, that's, uh, I guess that, I fun, that, no, that was good because my eyebrows were twitching a little bit at the beginning of that one. And then at the end, it all came together. So yeah, <laughs> that, that makes sense. I like it. Good. <laughs> uh, quick claim deed. Okay. So really less complicated in many ways than establishing if a stock is overbought or a PE ratio. That one had a little bit more solid definition to it, which is good. Yeah, uh, this is pretty cut and dried. And and the name actually is descriptive of what it does. You quit your claim on that particular piece of property. There you go. Yeah, that's always helpful when the uh, term actually <laughs> describes what it is, right? That's yes. Good. All right, this next one may require a little bit more digging, uh, a little bit more of that nuance that we saw in some of the other dictionary words. Our last one for this episode, regressive tax. Yeah, so... Um, there are basically two sides of this coin. A tax is usually either regressive or progressive. And progressive, the opposite of what we're actually talking about here is probably the easiest thing to understand because everybody knows that in America and in most countries, the more income you make, the higher your tax bracket is. It's progressive. As you progress through income stratas, you pay more the more you make. What a regressive tax does, and, and most people say, you know what, that's the way it ought to be. I got more money, I ought to pay a little bit more tax. Uh, people with less or a lot less, uh, I'm good with them paying less in tax. A regressive tax is one where regardless of your income, low income earners and high in income earners pay the same dollar amount. So one, I think, perfect example of that is the taxes that we pay on groceries, which doesn't happen in every state. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break that down for you. But here in Kansas, for instance, 
your groceries are totally taxable. As if you were going to buy a shirt, a pair of pants, a pair of shoes, your groceries are also taxable. Well, you may not buy that new shirt, you may not buy that new pair of shoes, but everybody's buying groceries. And the poor pay the same amount of tax as the rich on the food that they buy. You could also think of it as a gasoline tax when you go to fill up your tank. Whether you make $10,000 a year or $10 million a year, you're probably driving a similar number of miles and you pay the same gas tax per gallon regardless of how much you make and how many assets you have. So that's what a regressive tax is. And we're going to hear, I think we're going to hear a lot about that over the next year as the Biden tax plan comes about because they're going to try to figure out how do we more effectively soak the rich <laughs> because the rich have the money and, and there's a lot of discussion in Washington as to who owes what to whom and how much is fair. But what they won't do, I'm convinced, I'm convinced they're going to make every effort to not put in taxes that are regressive, but they're going to try to make our tax structure more progressive. So just, uh, just to go back to groceries here, here real quick, since I mentioned Kansas and I happen to live in Kansas, but Missouri's right in there too. So there are uh, evidently 50 states, obviously there are 50 states, there are five states that don't have sales tax. Of the 45 that do, 13 still impose it on groceries. Now, certain states have reduced that. They have a you know, regular sales tax for shirts and shoes and, and pants and a lower tax for groceries. But uh, Idaho, Kansas, and Mississippi, <laughs> it's the same tax uh, whether you're buying a shirt or shoes or groceries. So, you know, Arkansas has a really modest sales tax on groceries. Uh, but Hawaii, Tennessee, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Idaho, Kansas, Mississippi, you are paying a fairly significant regressive tax on your groceries. This was uh, uh, what I did uh, as I was preparing for the podcast was went to the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities. It's in D.C. They, they did a nice study. This thing's dated April 1st of 2020. That's how I knew, frankly, <laughs> this was a bit of a surprise to me that um, I didn't know that Kansas was kind of out there on their own as far as highly taxing groceries. So, you know, I, I didn't even are... know there were five states that didn't have any sales tax at all. <laughs> well, I'm glad we had this little chat. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. And, yeah. and those are, I, I Googled it real quick. Those are Alaska, Delaware, Montana, New Hampshire, and Oregon. Kind of interesting. Yeah. Not so, even, not know, even really grouped in the same area, kind of spread out. <laughs> and so, you know, tax policy is, as you just, as we have both just demonstrated, is a little bit all over the board. And depending on who you are and your outlook on life, you may think that everything should be progressive and significantly progressive. You may think, you know what, user taxes are perfectly fine, and those are totally regressive, but they're based on how you use public services. So it's not a given that everybody agrees as to how taxes should be structured in America. And that's probably why it's such a hotly debated topic between the far left, the far right, and those of us who self-describe as being somewhere in the middle, it's a topic that is by no means resolved. It's not going to be resolved 
in my lifetime either. But anyway, that's what a regressive tax is. It tends to be, it's the most expensive, the less you have. And um, so that's, that's why they, they tend to uh, look for ways to eliminate regressive taxes and try to make our tax structure more progressive. I think it's helpful to understand the moving parts uh, that go into the tax structures and those different definitions. And I'm sure a lot of people have heard that thrown around a lot, right? Progressive tax versus regressive and some of these other terms. Maybe it goes in one ear and out the other. Uh, Hopefully today provides a little better context for when you hear those things mentioned. I know it certainly helps me, David, to get reminders of these things from time to time because We know one thing, there's lots of buzzwords in the financial world, and that's why we do the Financial Dictionary every once in a while here on the show, so we can try and get some understanding of some of these moving parts and some of these things. Um, Very helpful information. I appreciate that, David. Uh, If you've got any questions about this, maybe there's a word in the financial world or a buzzword or something in your portfolio that you've spotted or seen or never quite understood how it works or fits into your particular situation, even if you kind of understand the, the word, maybe there's something that you don't quite understand of how it affects you individually. Uh, David can certainly help you look at all those kinds of things and help make sure that you're well-educated about it, the things that you need to know when it comes to financial and retirement planning. Easy to reach out and have those conversations. You can dial 913-317-1414. Come and say hello in the office there in Overland Park or go online to cover your assets, KC. And we're going to put contact info in the show notes of today's program so it's easy for you to locate. David, really appreciate the help, and uh, we'll look forward to another new episode with you next week. Yeah, we're working up a a list of um, listener questions, so uh, hopefully we'll have that ready for next time, and we'll look forward to doing that. Perfect. Yeah, if you want to slide in any uh, requests between now and then, please do. CoverYourAssetsKC.com, again, the place to go. and You can contact us through the website with any of your questions that uh, you might want featured on the show as well. Uh, We'll look forward to talking to you again next time right back here on the Cover Your Assets KC Podcast. Thanks for listening. Investment advisory services offered through Brookstone Capital Management, LLC, BCM, a registered investment advisor. BCM and KC Financial Advisors are independent of each other.